for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Some interesting developments on the proportional representation front on the panel this morning. Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sun's Rob Shaw. Later in the show, BC's Housing Minister Selena Robinson joins us in studio. Good morning and welcome to Inside Politics. Pleasure to be joined on the line by Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sun's Rob Shaw. How are you guys doing? Good, Shane. Good. All right. Well, uh, some significant developments on the proportional representation front. Uh, the Premier, uh, who in fairness has been no fan of closed lists, but taking it a step further with you, Rob, and saying that uh, if pro-rep wins the day here on this referendum, uh, that he would instruct the legislative committee who's going to be in charge of all the finite details that uh, closed lists are a no-go. It's going to be an open list. Uh, interesting timing. Uh, what, what are sort of the pros and cons of this thing uh, as, as we look at uh, where we are in the process? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's two ways to look at it. The pro is that for the yes side, the premier has kind of made MMP the most palatable of the three options by doing this, taking closed list off the table, which is where parties set the list, and you don't get to vote individually on people, you just vote for the big list, um, is uh, potentially something that the yes side could use to take people who are undecided at this late date or who want to vote for change but don't understand the three systems and therefore can't bring themselves to vote that way, um, they can use this potentially to their advantage. The con, I guess, is what we're hearing from the Liberals already, which is they accuse John Horgan of manipulating the process in the middle of the referendum, tweaking some of the some of the details on one of the options, and kind of once again, um, you know, admitting in a roundabout way that we didn't have enough detail at the start of this process for voters to make a good decision. So. I'm not sure any one way this washes out, but I think there's potentially pros and cons for both sides. Yeah, Keith, what can we read into it? Sort of an 11th hour move or two weeks away from the end of the voting period, assuming elections BC doesn't extend it with the Canada post-strike ETC, but uh, what do you read into this? Yeah, I asked uh, the Premier about that, about the comments he made to Rob, and he said, well, come on, you know, it's just an extension of what I said before. I'm, ag- I'm against closed lists, and so and so are the Liberals, and so are the Greens, so it's just natural. We don't, we'd extend that to a legislative committee voting that way. Well, what I think he's done here, he sort of uh, seems to have really revived the Liberals' attack on this, and it's because he's, ra- he's raised the, the fact that there are a number of unanswered questions and a lot of unanswerable in- um, bits of information uh, post-referendum. And that's what, anecdotally, that's what I'm getting back from people. That's what really drives people crazy. They don't know all the answers. They don't know how it's, it's actually going to work. They don't know what the writing's going to look like. They don't know how many MLAs they're necessarily going to have. And it's that sort of vacuum of, of, mis- of it, a lack of information that is, I think, the the chief vulnerability of the yes side, asking people to make a change. You know, John Horgan calls it a leap of faith. Our colleague Von Palmer says it's a, it's a leap into darkness, that you don't know what you're getting here. And the fact that he's able to zero in on, a, on a one aspect of one of the systems like this about something that's going to happen post-vote, I think plays more to the advantage of the no side than the yes side. Rob, you've made the point uh, here on this show last week that, that this could be sort of a step in the direction of uh, aligning behind MMP and trying to get one voting system out in front of the voters with a couple weeks to go here. Uh, and maybe that plays into that strategy. But conversely, to Keith's point, I mean, uh, could this backfire? Is there sort of blood in the water and the shark circling as well? Yeah, I mean, it burst this bubble, this illusion that the uh, the government was trying to give us that uh, you know, a bunch of MLAs, your duly elected representatives will sit around a table after the referendum and in a nonpartisan, mature and congenial way, 
hammer out the details of this referendum in a way that best benefits the province. Well, in fact, they're whipped. This is just another mm. whipped uh, vote from a legislative committee that the NDP and Greens will dominate with their numbers. So inadvertently, he has revealed the fact that this is just a partisan decision. Uh, the committee will simply do what the Premier and Andrew Weaver want them to do. And, the, and that, that kind of bursts that bubble, I think. And, you know, that, that mm. idea that the government has been giving us that, oh, don't worry, this is, <laughs> there's, there's still another check and balance here. Well, there isn't. It's basically the Premier's whim. And I think that, uh, more than anything, might hurt people because it feeds into the idea that, at the end of the day, this whole process is something that the NDP and Greens cooked up uh, for their own benefit. And that's one of the, the strongest arguments I think the Liberals have made. Yeah, and it wasn't uh, wasn't that long ago in the debate where Horgan was falling back on the uh, the boundary ridings commission uh, argument that the, that would all be sorted out in sort of a neutral process, and that, that balloon has definitely been popped as well. Uh, Keith, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think uh, I mean I tweeted last night. This thing is in danger of becoming a train wreck because it's confusing for people. There's a lack of information. The the voter response right now is very low, less than eight percent. Although you know, back to the HST referendum, it was slow response at the beginning and it ramped up near the end. I asked John Horgan again uh, this week whether or not a low turnout uh, could damage the credibility or the legitimacy of this uh, of the result. Uh, that if only at the end of the Day, a small minority of people pick uh, the path to proportional representation and, and give up the first past the post system. Does that really make it legitimate? Like fifteen percent of the population to make it make the call on on changing the votes for a hundred percent of the population? He didn't really answer that. In uh, sort of uh, dodged it. Uh, he was asked a couple times, name a number that you're comfortable with, and he basically kept naming the event he was at about how many student beds are going to be in student residences. It was the only number he wanted to talk about. He won't talk about percentages of what could come from this vote. And I think if it's uh, if less than 20% end up making the choice, and I think it could very well be uh, a number like that, I think that raises serious questions about the legitimacy of it. And again, I think it raises the possibility there would be pressure perhaps to have an election on this issue rather than impose it on people, on the majority, uh, by a very small minority. So we've had, uh, I mean, a low voter turnout so far, but uh, still close to 250,000 people have cast a ballot, and we have this uh, this sort of wrinkle late in the game, Rob. Do you think that, that, I mean, whether this detail is major or minor or not, do you think this detail is enough that some people might be regretting casting a ballot or, or see it as Horgan messing with the process to date or no? I, I don't, I mean, I'm not sure how many people really understand the difference between closed and open list MMP. I think... You know, it had the Premier or EB or someone made this clear from the beginning, I think the yes side would have crafted a much better narrative around MMP and just basically explained, you're going to get the best version of MMP, it's used all over the place, vote MMP. But now we're so far down the path, I don't see how the people who voted already, if that was, it's unlikely that was a major hiccup for them. I, I mean, on voter turnout, I... You know, I was talking to, to, to someone today who floated the idea, well, what if you have very low voter turnout and the government, instead of enacting this one particular PR option that's chosen, simply spends the next year and a half researching that option, drawing up the maps, getting the details, giving all of that to people, and then you put it on the next election ballot as another referendum question between first-past-the-post and a fully fleshed-out system. I don't think the NDP and Greens want to do that, but they might be forced into some compromise similar to that if the numbers are as dismal mm-hmm. as they look like they might be. 
because it'll be hard to, to ram through uh, one system with 20, 30 percent uh, of the, the vote of people voting on it. Yeah, I, I want to, sorry, go ahead, Keith, did you want to jump yeah, in? No, that's the point I'm, I'm getting at, that the next election may have to be the ultimate decision-making uh, mechanism here if there's a low turnout. Uh, the person of Florida that's Rob, it's interesting, I've been having discussions like that with others, that if it, if it is a low turnout, uh, rather than impose it, find a different way to implement it with more details, but have another vote on it. Yeah, uh, I want to circle back to the the turnout aspect in a second, but I'm just kind of curious, the million-dollar question for me is, and again, uh, everybody here is politically engaged. Uh, we have a bunch of political operatives that are out there seeing it one way or the other. I'm kind of curious on this point of closed list, open list, and that kind of detail. I'm curious what actual Joe and Jane voters out there are, are engaged in as far as detail. Like, I don't know what the general family is sitting around the kitchen table talking about open closed lists or whether they're just looking at the ballot and going, what the hell is this? I'm kind of curious, I don't know where you guys fall on this, but what the what the decision-making mechanism is for, for most British Columbians out there. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, it's, it, go ahead, Rob. Yeah, I, it's, it's a great question. I just don't, I mean, I was talking to a political science professor today who has 100 students in three classes. He was surveying them, and they were basically saying that a lot of their parents hadn't filled out the ballot, that they were having to force them to fill out and mail the ballot back because they just, they, what I hear and what he was saying he hears is that people, if they can't coalesce around one of the three options, if they can't get their mind to understanding it, understanding how it would work and why they would support it, they can't vote for change. And they either don't submit the ballot or they submit it with first past the post. And so, I, I, I mean, the ordinary discussion out there might just be as simple as, and I think it might be, um, I don't get it, so mm-hmm. how can I vote for it? Yep. And if that's the, that's the question, then the second question will be, do you trash your ballot or do you vote first past the post? Because, you know, people might just choose not to participate and then... It, it might still pass because the only motivated people submitting their ballots at this point are the people who want to change the system. One else is kind of leaving them on their kitchen counter. Yeah. Keith? Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, it's uh, Again, I go back to the, the main criticism I get from voters, and, and people will phone me up, complete strangers, or will email me and say, what should I do? And I say, well, I'm not telling you how to vote here. But I, I explain to them, you know, here are the merits and the disadvantages of both systems. And I'm perfectly honest with them and nonpartisan. But the, one, the questions they keep asking, okay, so what will my writing look like? And I say, I don't know. A, a committee or a boundaries commission will have to decide that post-vote. And they immediately say, you know, stop me right there. They just don't want it because they don't know what they're getting into. They don't want to vote for change. But as Rob says, does that mean they just don't vote? Or do they take the time to fill out the ballot and, and stick with first past the post? It all comes down to which side gets most of those ballots in the envelopes. And, I'm, you know, you got the yes side has got the support of a lot of environmental organizations, which have pretty active membership lists, and they know how to motivate their people. So that's a, that's a big strength of the yes side. The no side, you know, we've got the Liberal Party for sure, very active now, I'm told, at the local levels, getting their members and their supporters to vote no to stick with first past the post. So it literally comes down to an envelope campaign, and uh, I'm not sure which side has the advantage. Let's take a quick break, and we'll continue our conversation with Keith Baldry and Rob Shaw here at Inside Politics on Radio NL right after this. Radio NL. Radio NL.com. Local news now. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. 
Welcome back to Inside Politics. We're talking to Keith Baldry and Rob Shaw about the proportional representation referendum. And let's talk about those ballots coming back now because I wanted to circle back to that question. I mean, we were talking a minute ago about um, uh, the actual, you know, engagement numbers as far as returns. Not terribly awesome right now, 7.4% as we speak. Uh, that'll go up, but the question is by how much. But my question is, if we get, let's pull a number out of the air. Let's say we get a 30% voter return rate. How many of those are going to pass in voting on the second question? So then you're going to have a much less ratio uh, potentially behind whatever system carries the day on 50% plus one, which I think is uh, worrying. Well, for sure. I mean, I, I've got a column out this week pointing out that let's say it's a 40% uh, turnout, and the first question uh, is divided probably fairly e- equally, but say it's a 55-45 split in favor of proportional representation. So right there, you've got less than 25% of the population now have made the decision to switch to a different voting system. Then you look at the three questions, and let's say it's a, it's a somewhat not quite a three-way split, but close to it, but MMP emerges as the slight favorite there. Well, you divide 25 in three, uh, and you've got 8%, uh, maybe a little more than that. And so it's conceivable that less than 10% of the population of BC, there's 3.2 million voters, less than 10% actually hit upon the actual system we could be using to elect politicians in this province. And I think that's extremely problematic. Rob, at what point do the numbers on, on either of the questions become so low that the government doesn't have a public mandate to do anything? Well, you know, the Liberals are saying 40% turnout at least. That's Andrew Wilkinson's number. I, I think 30 is is pretty questionable. But, you know, I mean, we, I asked John Horgan that yesterday. Keith asked it today. Um, and his answer is a version of, I hope everyone turns out their ballots. But to me, he said, look, we have another referendum two elections from now, which we've talked about in the past, how problematic that is, because it's not, it could change, right? Another government could change it before then. But he views that, in his words, as a safety valve on this whole process. So even if you get low turnout, there's another referendum, and maybe people will be more motivated once they actually see how it works. I mean, it's a dangerous game to play it that way, but I still think that's the new Democrat position, that even if you only have 8% of people um, the public got a chance. The public spoke from the people who wanted to engage, and that's the number. I just I don't see them backing off. They they're too far down the path. And if they do back off, um, the green what are the Greens going to do about that? Because they're they're fully invested in this, and I, I, that'll increase the tension uh, with that party, and uh, it, it just becomes a headache for them. So I just see them plowing ahead. I mean, I honestly don't see low voter turnout. Uh, being something the NDP stops and says, hang on, everybody, this is Mm. bad for democracy. (laughs) I think they just keep going. Yeah, I think it depends on the amount of sort of uh, their perception of the public outrage, if the number's super low out there, depending on what they do or do not do, I I suppose. But um, uh, looking at the ballot return numbers, it was kind of funny. They removed, of course, the regional uh, representation bar. So it's a straight out 50% plus one in this one. Uh, the, the initial part of this thing, I remember MLAs like Todd Stone and Peter Millibar and others in rural ridings across the province said, oh my God, Metro Vancouver could carry the day on this thing. You look at the ballot return numbers, it's the rural ridings leading the charge and getting the ballots back. And it's pretty dismal across Metro Vancouver. What can we read into that, Keith? Well, I think there's more of a determination in the out, in the outlying regions to get their votes in and to vote no, because I think there certainly is an impression out there that if they switch to proportional representation, by definition, that uh, they'll have a diluted voice at the table uh, in Victoria. Keep in mind, you know, our first-past-the-post system does have a unique wrinkle to it in that it does, the Boundaries Commission does take into account some of these smaller uh, 
populated regions that uh, still have elected representatives. You take a place like Nechaco Lakes near Prince George, it's got like you know, 15,000 voters there, and you know some of the Surrey ridings have 40,000 voters, yet they each have one MLA. So that's a wrinkle that does protect our smaller population um, bases, and I think that's an argument the No side has been, I know I've talked to Bill Tillman about this, the head of the No campaign, he's been using that argument quite consistently uh, in towns outside of Metro, that this is not in your interest to vote for a change. This current system does protect you, and that's why I think you've got a slightly higher turnout response uh, in those regions, and I suspect the no's are greatly outnumbering the yeses in in those cities. Yeah, and that would be my perception too, but uh, whether perception is reality, we'll find out. Can we assume that, Rob? It's no in rural BC and more yes in Metro? I, I think so. I mean, the NDP have a better organizational structure and more voters, and therefore more contacts in metro uh, than they do in the interior and, and in the north and in the rural parts of the province. Uh, he's right. Like, we've been to these boundary commission meetings where, uh, you know, there's a judge and other people who outline that, um, you know, either government legislation or Supreme Court of Canada rulings um, dictate that you have to hold certain ridings uh, for at certain sizes. You can't just abandon the north and make it one giant riding so that it equals the, the riding of a population of Richmond. Uh, and you know, the NDP, I don't think they've really, they haven't really talked about that at all, but they haven't even addressed it. I haven't heard a single comment on that at all. But uh, I bet you for people that are living there with a ballot worried that their riding's going to balloon in size or change or um, be altered in some way, they're, they're unhappy about that. And I wonder whether that, well, that could lead to a court challenge. I mean, I have heard people yeah. talk about that, that the outcome could be challenging court on a constitutional grounds that it somehow has penalized a, a, a class of voters, particularly if, and I don't think this is going to happen, but if that rural-urban thing uh, passes, which is a completely untried, drawn-up-on-the-back-of-an-envelope uh, system, that basically divides British Columbians into two very distinct types of voters. And I think I've had one lawyer tell me that's an easy charter challenge that he doesn't think would survive at a high court level. So um, I'm not sure the referendum is necessarily going to settle anything here. Yeah. Uh, one final thought uh, before we uh, say goodbye, uh, just because the issue I find really fascinating, uh, the SkyTrain versus light rail issue that's playing out in Surrey that's going to have some regional consequences down there. Uh, on a provincial level, uh, I mean, light rail was pitched as the uh, cheaper, easier option. We're finally seeing some momentum on that. That's now on pause. Uh, but if they do end up going SkyTrain, that's going to be a significant increase in costs. And what happens to the provincial money at the table? I know the Premier was asked about that this week, well, there's some confusion about this, because right now there is no provincial money in the Surrey LRT. That is, a, that is funded by TransLink, the regional uh, transportation authority in Metro Vancouver, and the federal government, and a little bit of money from Surrey. Uh, the provincial money is in the, in the subway line uh, at UBC. But traditionally, uh, the province builds SkyTrain. So if this SkyTrain thing was to be built in Surrey, for the first time it would be built by the regional authority, not the provincial government. But John Horgan was asked today, again, okay, this, this $1.6 billion takes you to the edge of Surrey, but to get into Langley, it takes another $1.2 billion. What about the money for that? And he's non-committal. Yeah, that's, that's the next phase, uh, and that has to be sorted out. I think at the end of the day, the provincial government will step up and will fund the whole project, but that's going to take a, a, a number of years before we're there yet. But it looks like McCallum's probably going to get his wish, the mayor of Surrey, to get SkyTrain to take it to the edge of Surrey, but whether it gets beyond that, I think, is a decision out in the future. Final word to you, Rob. Yeah, I mean, I think for a while we're going to be in a position where if that gets through the mayor's council, the province is going to turn back to the mayors and say, fantastic, 
where is your increased share coming from? And we'll be stuck in the same liberal government, metro mayors, uh, stalemate that we've been in for years on, are you going to increase property taxes? What are the other revenue sources? The mayors want carbon tax revenue. We just get jammed up on that point until we reach an election cycle, and suddenly the province uh, throws money out the window to try and get votes. So I, I, I foresee a very messy period where if it does go forward, the mayors are going to have to try and wrestle with funding sources until we get to 2021, when you could see John Horgan throwing out almost all that money onto the table to, to try and keep his votes in Surrey. Um, and then <laughs> and then we still have no idea where, where it's going to go from there. So it's going to get much, much worse before it gets better in terms of transit policy in, in the lower mainland. <laughs> oh, good God. All right, gentlemen, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Take care, Shane. Okay, take care. And that was the Vancouver Sun's Rob Shaw and Global BC's Keith Baldry. Take a quick break here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. On the other side, BC's Housing Minister Selena Robinson is in studio. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning. Welcome to Inside Politics. Real pleasure to welcome in studio uh, Housing and Municipal Affairs Minister Selena Robinson. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Shane. It's always good to have somebody in studio. I usually do this show by myself with everybody on the phone. So I love keeping you company. <laughs> you are, uh, I mean, you have a, some busy cabinet colleagues, but you are a very busy person yourself on the housing front. Absolutely. Housing uh, is a, a, a very important uh, file for our government, yeah. and uh, I hit the ground running back in uh, in July of uh, 2017. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, let's start there, because uh, this week uh, you've been in the headlines for making a pretty big announcement. Uh, you've launched a 10-year plan, almost $2 billion to build houses across the province, uh, 4,900 out of the gate right away, including, I think it's about 240 or so in the Kamloops area, 199 here, some up the North Thompson, some down in Merritt, etc. So, uh why don't we start with that? Uh, give me the details there. What's what's sort of the impetus of this, and, and how did you put this whole thing right. together? Well, we recognize, uh, certainly as a government, uh, we put together a 30-point plan that the housing affordability crisis that we are facing right across this province is, is significant. And so uh, part of the 30-point plan was a $7 billion uh, uh, acknowledgement that we needed to actually build some housing, that the province had a role to do that uh, over 10 years to invest $7 billion in a variety of, of different kinds of housing you know, women fleeing violence, uh, Indigenous housing, supportive housing. And then we created a fund, uh, the uh, Building Community Fund. Uh, and uh, the, and the, uh, this batch, this first batch mm. uh, of 14,000 that we intend to build over 10 years is 4,900. That's half a billion dollars that we announced uh, this week. Uh, and it's 42 communities right across the province, 72 projects that is going to be home to uh, 4,900 people. And I, I want to take a minute to just talk about the people that yeah. we're talking about, because yeah, I think that's really important. The uh, our, our commitment was about, you know, addressing the range of housing that people need. And that includes even middle-income people who are struggling to find affordable rental. And so when we looked at these projects, we recognized that they needed to uh, be... Um, 
multifaceted in that you can have different kinds of people living in these in these projects. So we are looking at a mixed income model where you will have ideally 30% of the, the folks who are making their, their new homes in this affordable mm-hmm. rental um, who are perhaps teachers or, or first responders or entrepreneurs. And uh, that will be 30%. 50% of people will be low to moderate income. So these are people who might be, you know, working uh, in, a, in a grocery store or a service worker, a tourism worker. And then 20% for people who need subsidized housing. Uh, and so recognizing that the value of having a community within building is really important, yeah. but also that we have a broad base of people who are looking for affordable housing. I've always been curious, how do you determine sort of the per unit pricing? I mean, in a 10-year plan, costs are going to be sort of, you know, A today. Uh, in two or three years, they're going to be, you know, D, E, or F. And you've put a finite amount of money in here. So over the long term, how do you kind of right. determine that? It, 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 it is challenging there's, <laughs> there's, because, because there's, there's escalation. But we also have been very focused on developing partnerships, and mm. that's the key to all of this working. Partnerships with nonprofits, with the co-op sector, and with local governments. And we've spent our first, you know, I've certainly spent my first year and a half in government really making sure that people understood that we can only deliver this kind of housing if we're working together. So in many of these projects, we have local governments that are absorbing the fees, or we have nonprofits that already have the land or have a, an existing uh, project that they're going to be uh, delivering more uh, with that asset. So we're, we're really working together to deliver because that's the only way we can make this work. The other part of that is sort of the opposite side of that coin is, is not only how you determine the building costs, but uh, the key phrase here is affordable. And I was struck by uh, your comments this week when you look at affordability. Now we're throwing in people that may not have been lumped into that group 10 or 20 years ago, people with good jobs, you know, solid jobs, and, and yet here they are struggling. So um, how do you, in building this stuff, ensure that the rent that they're paying over over the term remains quote-unquote affordable? Well, because it's in the hands of the not-for-profits, uh, that that's part of, of how we've made the, these work, because we've uh, looked at all of those components in order to deliver on this housing, and we've looked over the long term about what kind of affordable rents they're going to be. Um, the other thing I think that's really important to, to make note of here is that uh, we uh, haven't had an investment uh, in um, public housing or social housing uh, in a decade and a half. That There just hasn't been that kind of investment. And we also haven't been uh, focusing on making sure that we have rental stock being built across the province. It's been 30 years since you know that stopped being built in this province and it's because we d- we've had this this uh, this huge vacancy of these sorts of projects being built yeah. like just straight rental a purpose built rental that the 30 year old stock you know, or the 20-year-old stock now would be the affordable stock today, and that that hasn't happened. So aside from just building this kind of housing, we're also focusing on uh, how to stimulate uh, purpose-built rental. So creating rental-only zoning, for example, is a new piece of legislation that we brought in last spring to help stimulate that, because there's no one thing that we're going to be able to do as government that's going to change the landscape sufficiently to develop to, to deliver on affordability. Yeah. There's there that's why we have a thirty point plan. 
uh, and, and this is a piece of that plan. Tell me what you're seeing on the ground here in Kamloops. Uh, obviously, you were looking at Spirit Square this week. Uh, you've been on some of the other sites. Uh, there are sites yet to come. Um, what are you sort of seeing here in Kamloops from, from your perspective? Well, what I've, what I've seen in Kamloops is that there's been uh, a desperate need for, for affordable housing mm-hmm. for a long time. Uh, in my conversations with folks on the ground, particularly to Ask, Ask Wellness, we've certainly had some conversations there about the kinds of investments that we've been bringing bringing forward, uh, making a difference for those who are most vulnerable, but also the recognition that we're, we're looking at other kinds of housing. Uh, women fleeing domestic violence, for example. It's been 20 years since government has invested in, in any of that uh, important resource for, for women. And uh, we announced uh, last month, October, we announced uh, a project here in Kamloops. I think it's 40, 40 transition beds. I del- I'll have to double check because there's been so much. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm trying to keep track of where it is that we've announced. But we announced 12 projects around the province and yeah. one here in Kamloops. Uh, supportive housing. Uh, we have some significant investment in supportive housing for those who are, um, are, are homeless, recognizing that when we can bring the supports in, we can get them housed, that they do better and communities do better. And now this last announcement was really about so you know the a next the next tranche of, of housing for those um, who need a, you know looking for affordability yeah. um, and making sure that we have the full range there's no shortage of groups seniors uh, uh, women fleeing violence as you mentioned uh, all sorts of groups homeless uh, I'm just curious from a local perspective we did a uh, first of its kind last year youth homelessness count did a second one this year uh, the results were pretty shocking uh, there's like about uh, what 60 70 hardcore sort of on the street homeless youth um, probably a few hundred when you consider those you know, couch surfing and that kind of thing. Um, cases of, of, of young people trading sex for food and shelter, that kind of stuff. Um, I was struck by there seems to be sort of a lack of youth-focused resources, beds, shelter space, that kind of stuff. From your perspective, is it something that needs to be addressed? Or? Yeah, absolutely. It's something we need, that needs to be addressed. And Catherine McParland, who leads a lot of the uh, uh, on-the-ground, the youth homeless mm-hmm. strategy here in, in Kamloops, uh, she now sits on the board of BC Housing. Uh, we recognized her voice as a former uh, homeless, uh, homeless youth. Uh, as well as uh, um, an up-and-coming force to contend with. (laughs) Um, And she's been uh, our eyes and ears for the last six, seven months around the youth component. And it's absolutely something that we need to be addressing, and that's work that we're undertaking right now. Uh, On the seniors front, I don't know if you know or not, but uh, nearby community of Chase, uh, the new mayor there is saying one of his priorities is to lobby, a lobby for a seniors care home in their community. They don't currently have one. I believe, uh, I think I've heard you say that, you know, part of the reason is to keep, you know, seniors in their home communities, that kind of thing. Uh, he made the point that in his community, they have seniors living in Kelowna, in Vernon, in Kamloops, where there's care homes, while the rest of their family is in Chase and is forced to kind of go all over the region and kind of set in a very real way, sort of ripping families apart. I, I don't know if you have a ready answer there, whether there's a project there on your radar, but just your thoughts on well, that. Well, it's interesting that, that you said that, Chase because uh, when I first became a minister, one of the first communities that I heard from was Merritt. Mm-hmm. And they were t- they were ed- sort of educating me for coming from uh, urban British Columbia. They were educating me about rural British Columbia and what happens as seniors age and they can no longer stay in their homes and they're looking for affordable rental. It doesn't exist in Merritt, the kind of uh, you know safe place to stay in Merritt that they could rent. And uh, that uh, what w- would result then is that these seniors would 
come to Kamloops yeah. or to Kelowna, and uh, just like you described, uh, like, and so we announced uh, again this week as part of our 4,900, uh, 40 units of seniors housing for Merit. So the 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 space is there. Uh, there will be another call out, another request for proposals in a in a next couple of years as we unfold these first 4,900. But we recognize that there's so much more to do. There's been a real lack of concerted effort in making sure that we have the right kind of housing in the right communities right around this province, and we're focusing and listening and paying attention and working in partnerships with those who identify the need and making sure that we can uh, work together to deliver for people. All right, so willing to maybe sit down and listen to what the Mayor Chase has to say. Absolutely. (laughs) I meet with them at the UBCM regularly uh, every year, and uh, I look forward to hearing more about what Chase needs. All right, Selena, why don't we just take a quick break here on Radio and Al Moore with Housing Minister Selena Robinson on Inside Politics right after this. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning. Thanks for tuning in to Inside Politics. We're talking to Housing Minister Selena Robinson. One of the fascinating things is there's obviously a desperate need on a lot of fronts on the, on the housing issue. You're making uh, promises. They're all welcome. Uh, people are, are excited about this kind of stuff. Fair enough. Uh, but in many cases, it's going to be a year or two years before we see the actual physical buildings. Well, the need still exists on a day-to-day basis. So tell me a little bit about, um, you know, with these, with these welcome announcements aside, how are you going to sort of bridge from now to the place where, where these resources are on yeah. the ground because that need exists the whole time. Yeah, it's very it's very significant. And we are playing catch-up. We are absolutely paying, playing catch-up. So some of what we've done around the, certainly the support of housing, I think Kamloops has seen it. And I want to give a shout-out to Ask Wellness for their work in, uh, in six weeks delivering on uh, Mission Flats and making that happen. It's record time. I visited there today and was most impressed to see and uh, meet the, the new tenants. And they were very proud of their new space. And grateful for having an opportunity to stay warm. Uh, we increased, uh, the other thing that we did as part of our 30-point our plan is we increased um, supports RAP and SAFER. So that's uh, for families uh, and and seniors who are struggling with rent. Yeah. Uh, we've also increased the cap so that those families who make less than $40,000 a year can access uh, the rental assistance programs. And so I want to encourage all of your listeners who uh, are on the line um, to certainly reach out, uh, contact BC Housing, um, make sure that they're uh, accessing accessing uh, rental supports, uh, so we th- that they can you know be in the market but have a bit of support so that they can be uh, a bit more secure in their tenancy. We've also been working uh, and addressing the uh, residential tenancy uh, act to 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 deliver more security for people. So there's absolutely more to do. We are moving as quickly as we can. Um, it, it, it's, it's interesting. It's been, I think, 16 months now mm-hmm. uh, for us in government. And when I talk with uh, people on the ground who have been at this for years, yeah. they see how quickly that we are moving, that they, they you know, I've heard in fact, today it was we've been at this for a decade trying to get this kind of housing, and you're announcing like every couple of months more housing and more housing, and it is going to take time to build it, uh, and we're moving as quickly as we can. Uh, on the modular housing here in Camelot, maybe it's sort of a case in point. Uh, that was supposed to be online this winter, and the initial announcement that's obviously been delayed till some point next year. Uh, the Mission Flats housing is an interim to kind of tide us over till we get there. Exactly. Uh, but then that's a building that maybe didn't need to have to happen if this other project had been 
bit on time. So what's your sense of, of, of the modular housing and why the delay and, and et cetera? In, in different communities, it has different different challenges. Sometimes, you know, you, you um, because we are moving quickly, you do the analysis of exactly, you know, what are the components that need to be determined, whether it's the, the kind of soil it is or the, uh, the number of units. And then when you get down to it and you see that it actually it's going to take four months longer because the soil isn't quite what you thought it was yeah. which has been known to happen or uh, I believe in one of these cases there had to be an elevator that that was needed uh, and that was going to then take different it needed a different configuration so so things do happen uh, as part of uh, construction so you know, we have a bit of delay, but I'm very proud of the fact that we're able to come up with an interim solution uh, to be able to deliver it so that people are safe, because uh, at the end of the day, that's what this is about. It's about keeping people safe. Um, and, at, and they will have um, new homes yeah. uh, early next year uh, that, uh, where they have their own key and uh, where they can make a cup of tea in the middle of the night if they're not able to sleep, where they can get up in the morning and have a shower. You toured the Mission Flats facility. What do you think? I, I was impressed for for a what I'll call a refurbished mm. um, modular that was put up in six weeks. I was blown away at how a how well it came together, but also the smiles on people's faces, uh, knowing that they had a dry, warm uh, place to stay where they could put their stuff, where they could. Um, access supports if they needed it there were lots of support staff around that that was really um, impressive that there's a nurse on site yeah. uh, is also pretty amazing uh, that, th- that that their needs could be met there was hope in people's faces um, and with hope comes an opportunity for a different kind of life and I think that's good uh, I do want to talk to you about some other issues, uh, maybe not so pertinent to this community, but I am a little fascinated about how they're going to unfold and you'll have a role to play uh, there for sure as the municipal affairs minister. So first and foremost, uh, a, a lot of momentum and maybe not so much momentum on the transit front down in Metro Vancouver. We had the referendum, which was, of course, derailed some of the plans and we've been sort of inching forward ever since. But more or less, the region has been treading water on one front for a long time. Uh, we finally moved forward on LRT. We look like we're we're making some serious progress for a long time and then we have a, a change in leadership in Surrey and now LRT is uh, you know why don't we kind of phrase it in the garbage pile uh, delayed I don't know what the deal is but just your sense of, of light rail versus SkyTrain how, how do you feel about that? Well really I, I think it's important to recognize that this was a mayor's plan right yeah. and and I have always said that when you have mayors agree to a plan that that in and of itself is a miracle there's there's 21 of them, and if they all agree to the plan, then we ought to support it. And our government did support it, and uh, we worked with the mayors to determine the regional source of funding. They had to come up with yeah. uh, how to do that, and we did that, and, and I'm very proud of that work. The fact that uh, there's been a change in Surrey, that the the, pref- the preferred uh, um, uh, delivery, <laughs> the, the, the preferred kind of tracks are ones that are raised, yeah. um, you know, I that's that's you know the mandate that the mayor that the mayor was given. But I also think it's important to recognize that this phase two plan was more than just light rail in Surrey, right? It's the extension uh, out Broadway. It's almost a million hours, nine hundred thousand hours of additional 
buses and bee lines and and uh, platforms uh, reconstructed. I, I, I'm a regular user, and I have to tell you, rush hour on some of those platforms, you can't oh, you can't move, right? Sure. Yeah. So there's a handy dart, increasing handy dart hours and services. So so that's all uh, stable. And uh, right now, my understanding is that the uh, the mayor uh, has said, you know, we're not we're not uh, taking light rail. That's not the preferred model anymore. And so TransLink has said, okay, then. And there'll be there'll have to be discussion around the mayor's table uh, around how do you, what 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 what's the preferred path path forward and yeah. uh i look forward to working with the mayors it's going to mean different costing different planning i mean light rail building it was supposed to be the cheaper of the two options now you're going to do potentially raised SkyTrain, which okay uh but will the province still come to the table with its share of funding even if those costs are cost kind of you know well increase we, or we've or? already committed committed our funding right yeah. so we've, we've signed off on phase two and the funding for phase two so the funding's finite then even though maybe the the changes well but, but we'd have to see what the what business plan is uh. there's still a fair bit of work for for them to do if they're going to change uh change the the direction but i also think the the important thing to to remember and uh is that the light rail the option of the light rail was was about how do you build out your city or your neighborhoods around the light rail right mm. and kinds of densities that that brings yeah. and um skytrain as a different model raised model has a different kind of uh, land it creates a different kind of landscape in terms of how you deliver on your um, on your housing and that, that goes around it and how it builds out the community. And that that's very, very different. It has a different look and a different feel, and that's the work that Surrey has to do and has to understand. I'm also fascinated by the move in Surrey from RCMP to Municipal Police Force. I mean, I'm not, it's fine. A community has the power to make that choice. They've got the two-year opt-out in the RCMP contract. All fair and good. I'm curious what you think, because what stands out to me is, is, is the rush. Um, it's not an easy thing to build a municipal police force. You've got to do the hiring. You've got to figure out, you know, what your uniform colors are going to be. <laughs> You're going to buy a vehicle fleet. I mean, yeah. the, the, the detail is endless. Uh, and yet they think they can do it in two years. I don't think they can. But I'm just, are you, uh, is it perking up your ears as you watch sort of this pedal to the metal well, approach? Well, it's, 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 it's fascinating to watch in terms of, uh, you know, movement. Mm. Uh, and fair enough, I, I can appreciate um, the importance of movement because I feel that was my experience when we became government was about there's lots of things that we need to move on and we we have moved um it, it, it'll have to you know i, I know that my colleague uh, minister farnworth uh, responsible for public safety uh will be monitoring very closely uh, because his responsibility he's responsible for making sure that there's a police force in place yeah. and that that work will have to proceed going forward and and uh the community and the mayor and council will have to provide assurance that they're doing exactly what uh, the community needs from a from having a, a police force that works. Yeah, boy, boy, are they in for uh, a some sticker shock and I think some timeline challenges. I think it's fair to say. Well, change like that is is significant and it is major, and they have to make sure that they do it right. Yeah, I just I th- I'm going to be really fascinated. Once they start looking at the costs and they have to work it into a budget and then they have to go to the citizens in Surrey and say, okay, well, here's your 9% property tax hike or whatever it is. That's going to be, wow. That's the work that they have to do. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, Selena, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming. It was good to see you. Pleasure to see you too. Take care. (laughs) Housing and Municipal Affairs Minister Selena Robinson. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL next week. Radio NL. NL RadioNL.com. Local news now.